definitely prefer another some of those. Oh, and we're live. Do you guys see that? I see it. Yes. Okay, so we are the Data Science Deployed podcast, and we are going to talk about deploying data science projects. Um, I'm Jillian. You should, should say hi. I'm Ben. And I'm Donnie. And this week, Donnie is going to be talking to us about the materials project. So can you give us just a brief overview of what that is, first of all, and uh, how you came to know about it? Sure, sure. Thanks. Yeah, so the materials project, um, people can go to materialsproject.org. Uh, it's, it's this project that aims to take everything we know theoretically about uh, materials. In particular, the focus is on solid materials that are single crystalline, so the kind of you know simple solid materials in a sense, and try and compute as much as we can about them using first principles methods. Um, so, you know, going back to things like the Schrodinger equation and, and stuff that, you know, traditionally takes a long time to compute, but because we have supercomputers and lots of compute power now, um, you know, it, it turns out there aren't that many known materials, you know, there aren't a billion, there are, you know, tens of thousands. And so we try and put all of this computing power against them uh, and to give this open web-based database um, to help people uh, essentially innovate with materials. Um, materials discovery for new applications, if you kind of can correlate um, you know, certain features, you know, like, like, like in machine learning, you know, feature featureizing and you know, certain things that might correlate with certain properties or outcomes you want in your devices or applications, um, you might be able to find better materials than you already have um, or not. And the big benefit here is uh, the, the director of the project, Christine Person, used to call it the, the Edisonian approach. So, so there used to be, you know, and it's still a big case in the materials in industry, this, this trial and error approach where, um, you know, the, the lore is that uh, Thomas Edison just tried a bunch of materials for the original light bulb filament and eventually came upon tungsten as something that worked. They just tried lots and lots of materials um, in the lab. But the idea is that we can maybe do lots of experiments in the computer um, faster and cheaper. And we can you know, screen lots of materials and then know, okay, these are the actual experiments that I wanna do. So it should hopefully be a lot uh, faster than, than the trial and error approach where you, you might take a decade or more to get from discovering a material and testing its properties and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and there have been several great uh, you know, outcomes from the materials project. Um, one, one of Duracell's newest batteries, um, you know, uses a, a, a material that that was, was born out of out of this work, out of you know, the the co-founder is Christine Person and and Herbert Cedar's uh, original work on it. And there have been lots of papers that have said, yeah, the materials project really helped us screen, um, you know, the the space of materials that we thought would be interesting, and then we followed up with experiments or more time-intensive computations. And it was sort of step zero, step one for us, um, helped us kind of narrow our focus. Um, so that's that's sort of the point of that and to make it kind of generally available. It, it's, it's sponsored by the US federal government, um, Department of Energy and, and, and uh, other people that have, have thrown in. And uh, it's, it's sort of just to benefit uh, innovation. So it's, it's kind of openly accessible and uh, to try and, you know, do this, this open science thing um, and it was, one of the first computational materials databases of its kind. Uh, 
So yeah, that's the materials project. My role, my role on it was, um, it, it was, it was my last full-time gig. Um, and I started on it and I was, uh, the, the principal web developer and sort of backend data engineer, um, for, for, for the website and that, that sort of thing. Uh, so yeah, I sort of know the ins and outs of, um, lots of scientists who, uh, published papers, publications associated with this and wanted to sort of get their work up there. So it, it wasn't just, you know, uh, giving their data out as dead trees as, 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 as PDFs, you know, dead data, people could look at figures. It's sort of, Oh, I can go to this website and like get this data and use it. And, um, you know, I can explore this, this, this algorithm or this, 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 this data model that they created and I can use it to predict my own materials. And, uh, so it's, it's kind of really usable that way. So, um, that, that's sort of the big idea, not just sort of static pages of, of data and tables, but like apps, apps where you can go in and plot something and type in a different chemical formula and, and get the kind of thing you're looking for. Um, so yeah, real, real fun project, lots of wonderful people over the year, over the years and um, it's still going. Yeah. That's so interesting. I had no idea you could just like run around pre-computing materials, like just, oh, use a computer and run through a bunch of simulations and this, I want this. Is that kind of the idea there? Yeah, that's kind of the idea. You kind of, you, you, uh, you generally start with um, some idea of what your material looks like. So a lot of these materials are kind of, you know, you'll like posit the so-called unit cell. So you'll kind of have this, this crystal material that could go on in, in infinity, so like a bulk crystal or something, but you kind of posit, okay, it's these atoms in these approximate positions, and um, you know this is what it should be theoretically, or this is what we measured experimentally, and then you you might throw it into a pipeline. So a lot of times the first pipeline is the first workflow is called uh, energy relaxation. So you might um, uh, do it into something and it'll kind of massage it. You know, uh, similar to simulated annealing techniques. You know, and, and other other aspects of machine learning and, and you kind of come up with sort of the lowest energy configuration of, of, of all of those atoms. And it's like, okay, this is actually where we think, you know, all those atoms, you know, should be. And then you can do follow on things like calculate um, band structure. So uh, uh, things like the band gap and like how, how, so how the material would interact with light in certain, certain transitions. And so you might get, get a sense of that sort of thing. Um, and the other, big thing that's nice about doing this in aggregate. So, so calculating kind of the, the, the energy of formation of all of these materials is you can sort of determine a proxy for synthesizability. So you might have, oh, if I have like a bunch of these atoms and I, and I you know, put them in a bowl and mix them up um, or, or what have you, you know, more sophisticated than that, um, what am I gonna get out? And, and so what you can do is you can do this analysis where you have all these different formation energies of different known materials that, that use those chemical elements. And you can say like, well, am I likely to get this particular crystal structure of this material or am I likely to get other things, you know? And so that, that's definitely something that, that falls out of this, this thermodynamic analysis, uh, even theoretically of all these different materials. Um, so a lot of people will kind of use it for that sort of thing. Um, one interesting project uh, I was on recently was someone, um, well, actually, let me, let me talk about like the, the, the data science deployed thing that I, that I was thinking that uh, <laughs> we, we, would, uh, we would talk about today. So um, uh, 
one really expensive calculation that people do, um, it, was, it was developed in, uh, in our group and published, is calculating mechanical properties of material. So things like um, the bulk modulus and, and, and the, the shear modulus. So like if you kind of like try to try to compress something, you know, you know how much does it resist compression or, or expansion? Or if you kind of pull on it on its sides, like how does it respond to shear stresses? And so these things can be useful for you know lots of different things. Um, including piezoelectricity. So, so some materials, uh, you know, when you, when you kind of squeeze them, they kind of give out a little bit of current or something. They kind of have this mechanical electrical relation. Um, some of the most, most famous applications of piezoelectricity are, are uh, uh, um, airbags in your car. Um, and uh, and uh, uh, well, I, I think like ink inkjet printers also kind of do this, this sort of thing where you kind of, uh, you know, they move on electrical current. Um, and, uh, one thing we did is, is we calculated a bunch of these, but they're, they're expensive calculations. Even though we have a lot of compute power, we have millions of CPU hours. So we were able to calculate a few thousand of them for the, you know, tens of thousands of known materials we have. Um, but because it's so expensive to even calculate these, even to do these virtual experiments, um, and before that, I should say there were only about, there were only tens of, of these full experimental things. So already we approved by... A couple of orders of magnitude, I believe, by by offering computed values, people were really excited about that. Um, and uh, the uh, but what we did is we collaborated with some people and came up with a machine learning model, right, a statistical learning model based on some features to try and predict some of these properties based on some of the computed materials data we have and based on our, our knowledge, our theoretical knowledge of the structures of these materials. And so what we did um, is that paper got published. Here's a model. But we went beyond that. So what we what we what we do is on on pages of the site where you can look at properties of materials, like oh here's here's the formation energy, here's these properties. Um, oh here here's some elastic properties. Here's the elastic modulus, blah blah blah. But there are some materials, most of them, where hey we haven't calculated you know a, a full elastic tensor for this material, you know, to, to the degree of our theory. But click this button. And you can get a prediction based on our model. And here's a link to the to the to the the publication that shows you our methodology for the model. Um, and furthermore, when you click on that link, we sort of feed into that as sort of a, a collaborative filter filtering voting kind of thing, where basically, since they clicked on that, we're like, oh, maybe we should prioritize doing the full calculation of this material because this is this is something that people actually want to know the full uh, the full thing for. And so, in that sense, you you can have this kind of feedback loop where you might, uh, you know, calculate those new things and then maybe retrain the model. We sort of didn't didn't get around to that, um, but so so yeah, we've, we we sort of deployed that model, and and so that paper gets more citations because people don't have to like download the full, you know, whatever load of VM, deploy it, and like run the model on their thing. You know, they can if there's a, if there's a material in the materials project that they're interested in calculate in like running that model for, they can click a button and and then run the model and then cite the model um, because academics love citations and so they will cite the model, they will cite this, and um, and yeah, and and they'll, they'll also know that like oh we we might actually calculate that thing. We have many other priorities. We have different grants, so we might want to do things other than calculating mechanical properties. But we've sort of noted that there's been a vote for that thing. So that, that's that's sort of my data science deployed story for that. I have a question about that model. How good does a, a 
prediction of these properties have to be for it to be useful in another paper or in, in other research? Yeah, great question. So I, I think definitely what's nice about this stuff is, um, you know, it, it's just sort of a first step. So, so people might get predictions and across a variety of materials, they might correlate that with structure and they might be like, oh, I think, you know, I can see a trend here and this, this means this is the kind of experiment that I do. Um, but they, they won't necessarily report it as a thing. And the other great thing is, is um, the, the model comes with built-in caveats. So, um, you know, for, for some of the things, there are different, different kinds of classes of warnings. So, uh, you, know, you know, someone might, might uh, click a button and get a prediction and there'll be a specific warning that's saying like, hey, you know, this, this material has these, you know, has this class of elements in the periodic table and like the model is known to like systematically like do this weird thing for these kinds of elements. So like specific warning here, not just like, oh, generally this model has like overall, you know, mean squared error of blah, blah, blah. But it's like, oh no, this specifically like, you know, it might be wrong. So definitely caveats and like, there's a link right to the paper there. Um, um, but yeah, there, there's also definitely that, that specific warning um, because uh, yeah, a lot of times it, it, it's better than like having it be fine print or, or something. So yeah, we definitely, we definitely do that sort of thing. Um, and uh, yeah, we do that in, in general for a lot of other, other predictions thing, uh, predictions. Uh, so like the, another thing we have is, um, we calculated X-ray absorption uh, spectra for a lot of materials, um, and yeah, we have a big warning about that. Like, uh, you know, <laughs> hey, uses this theory, blah blah blah. Um, and that's another example of, of, of deployment there. So, um, what was what was nice is we have this X-ray absorption spectra app, and, and an experimentalist, if they've measured um, an X-ray absorption spectra, so just like 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 a plot of like you know how much the material absorbs of this energy of X-ray, you know, along a sweep of frequencies, if they, if they have that 2D plot and they upload it, um, again, there's this, this paper um, out, of, out of our collaboration that was uh, an uh, ensemble learning model that, that tries to predict, um, you know, what material it might be looking at that plot. Um, and so, yeah, lots of caveats about there, but someone can upload you know, an experimental spectrum and get a list of materials in like ranked order um, according to the ensemble learners of, yeah, we think it might be this material. Like maybe, maybe this is the material you're looking at. Um, and so that's another example of, uh, you know, running a model um, that's, that's imperfect, but it's, it's sort of usable. It's accessible for people. Um, it, it's sort of not just locked away in a, in a paper and, and people need to like, you know, spin up a Docker image and blah, blah, blah. And blah, blah, blah. it's sort of, you can go to the website and like, oh, this is cool. Um, so, so yeah, yeah, we're definitely big on caveats because, uh, yeah, we, we don't want to over, over promise, oversell things, um, particularly as, as yeah, scientists who want to be cited and, and all that. Yeah. And the, am I right that the, the consumer is other scientists. So the, the caveats are actually useful. They're, they're going to be read by a human who's going to take that and think about it instead of you're not making some automatic decision based on this prediction. Is that, is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. It's, it's definitely, um, you know, our, our, our traditional focus, you know, by necessity or, or whatever has been the human in the loop kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, it's definitely um, a way of, of scientists to disseminate information to other scientists. Um, and you, we get a mix of, of, of people. Um, 
you know, certainly there are lots of other computational scientists who kind of will look to the materials project um, for the various parameter settings and they'll, they'll kind of want to reproduce results. And they're like, oh, you know, you were able to like, you know, calculate the formation energy of this, 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 uh, this structure and it has tricky elements. Um, and, and like, I wasn't able to get mine to converge, but I see you have. So maybe I'll use the materials projects published, uh, you know, parameters for that sort of thing. Um, and so you'll get computational scientists trying to advance the state of the art of the theory um, by using some of our data. Um, the other hand, the other thing I'm really excited about is, uh, you know, non-subdomain specialists, like experimentalists, people who don't know about density functional theory and, and running these calculations and, um, and are, you know, mistrustful of these theoretical results. And, and you know, they'll, they'll go to a page for a material and they're like, I've measured the band gap of this. That is not the band gap of this material. What is going on? Um, and so, and so we would try to be, be careful about, okay, you know, this level of theory, um, you know, in that case specifically, you know, there's a certain technique we use that, that systematically underestimates the band gap and, and is known to, but what's great is it, it's consistent across all of the materials. So you can see trends. Um, so it's, it should still be useful, but it, it's not meant to replicate the experimental result. But yeah, we, we definitely want to like help, um, help experimentalists a lot um, do that. And material science is, is such a such a broad field. People are are, are working on lots of different things, um, you know, integrated circuit devices, to mechanical things. Um, there are lots of different properties and ways that you can process materials. Um, and uh, and we only do like a small part of it. Um, so like like single crystalline things. We don't deal with with defects because those are hard to, to simulate. I mean, we do, do we don't do, do them across across the board, um, but yeah, there's just a large variety of, of people that we want to help, and so yeah, we, we we try and we try and make things things accessible while while still being um, as precise as we can using using common language. Um, yeah, really like the. Uh Okay. I really like that you guys have this idea of like human in the loop. I'm always really interested in people uh, who are doing these kind of projects and not just how you tackle it from a technical point of view, but also from like just a talking to people point of view. Cause you know, sometimes uh, I always like to say that while we certainly have technical problems, I think we have like way more people problems, particularly in tech. So how is that something that you guys dealt with and what kind of decisions did you make? along the way to make sure that you were going to have something that, okay, no, at the end of the day, this is supposed to be accessible by people who want to do science and uh, maybe aren't going to be running these calculations themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. I mean, I think, I think one of the, the strengths of the project was it, it, it kind of being embedded in um, a, uh, a research group that was sort of doing a lot of things and wanted to sort of get their data out there. Um, so, um, you know, we had, I mean, our, our director, Christine person was great at bringing people together. Um, one thing that was good about the organization of the project is there, there are multiple principal investigators, multiple kind of lead people on the project that represent, um, different aspects of the space and different interests. There were, um, computational people, experimental people, people at different institutions. Um, we had people in, in Berkeley, California, people at, uh, MIT in, in, in Boston, uh, people in, in Belgium, people in, you know, Long Island, uh, San Diego, uh, kind of, kind of all, all around. Um, and, uh, I think one, one thing that was good is, is we had a, a weekly meeting, 
um, where, where, where people just kind of, uh, you know, came in and discussed the state of things and what they were working on. I think it was good to have, have FaceTime with people. Um, so we were doing Zoom long before uh, everyone had to do Zoom, uh, et cetera, um, because we were a distributed team. Um, but it was also great because we also you know, shared an office. And so I, we got to have uh, contact with, with postdoctoral researchers and graduate students and, 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 and lots of people are doing that sort of thing. Um, another great thing for, for collaboration, uh, we, we had a channel, we had like a, a dedicated uh, Slack room that was the, the channel that was, that was good for, for coordinating with people. Um, also, a lot of our, our development, all of our development, um, was done uh, through a GitHub organization. So a lot of our, our stuff is, is open source. So yeah, a lot of great communication facilitated through, um, you know, protocols around pull requests and issues and discussing things and that sort of thing. So that, that was, that's really great for collaboration, making sure everyone's, you know, voices gets, gets heard um, as a, as a, you know, a, a, as something um, in addition to the meetings, the, 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 the in-person meetings. Um, let's see. Uh, we also uh, started a, a workshop, an annual workshop um, that's been going five years strong now, um, where, where we, we get people in. And so we'll, we'll have a lot of people come, um, used to be in person, of course, um, and they'll, they'll come from industry or, or from other places. And, and we'll try to teach them about uh, our, our data-driven methods, our, our data, our interface, uh, the, 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 the Python library we have that... that uh, you know, helps people to to analyze the data from the website um, in a way that they don't have to you know re reprogram things custom themselves. Um, how they can run things themselves and just hopefully make sure things are, are relevant for them. Um, and so we've gotten a lot of feedback from that. So we kind of have that 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 long feedback cycle of like the in person intense workshop. We also had to have the weekly meetings within our collaboration. Um, and another thing I, I helped launch and that we have um, is. Uh, matsci.org, matsci.org. Um, I think it used to be like, you know, discuss.materialsproject.org, but just an online forum that uses the open source um, discourse forum software open to the community so that, you know, again, if, if people don't have issues that are particular to like the software and it feels awkward to have a GitHub issue, they can just be like, how do I use this? Or like, what does this thing mean? Um, and so just having these various communication channels sort of helps people, you know, in whatever form they see fit to kind of participate, you know, whether they're just participating by, you know, asking a question or that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's how we've sort of tried to be inclusive of the community and, and take lots of input and, um, and progress in that. But yeah, I think definitely we, we've also just been lucky with some great people and some great direction and leadership in the program. Um, and people that have understood the kind of impact that we can have um, and uh, just, yeah, trying to have an ear to the ground and, and going forward with that. Yeah. Okay. I want to hear about the tech stack. Uh, could you talk about the, <laughs> how you built this machine learning feature, how you deployed it? Uh, yeah. What, what's, what's it running? What, what does it look like today? How sure, many sure. nodes did you need on that HPC cluster? That's what I want to know. I want to uh, know all about the nodes. Okay, uh, that's an interesting <laughs> story. So, so uh, a lot of the the HPC stuff, the high performance computing stuff, is sort of built um, around the idea of you want like you need a lot of nodes to do something, 
and, and, and like, we're going to prioritize that sort of thing. So like, if you need like a thousand cores, you know, or more, like, like, like we're going to schedule that thing and, and it's going to run for this amount. Um, but a lot of the stuff we're doing is kind of single core stuff. Um, even though it kind of, kind of takes a while and we're, and we're doing a lot of it. So, um, we've actually, uh, done some techniques where you, you kind of, uh, um, one of the PIs in the project on above Jane has this cartoon um, on a site. I remember where it, it, it's almost like you, you have like three people standing on each other's shoulders, like sitting, like people sitting on its shoulders and, and, and like, like, like a big like costume around it. So it looks like a really tall person, but it's like three people uh, like, like under, underneath the big suit. And, and it, it's like, it, that's sort of how it feels like, um, you know, with a lot of the stuff we were doing early on of like getting into a supercomputer. Cause it's like, oh, we, we sort of can package up things as if it looks like a really big job. <laughs> and we're using a lot of resources, <laughs> but we sort of like, we're like, hey, it's, it's a really, we need a lot of cores, but it's just a lot of little things using cores and like coordinating really well. Um, and so a, a lot of the, the stack behind that is sort of like a homebrew, uh, uh, workflow management system written um, using Python and, and MongoDB uh, called Fireworks. So, so you'll, you'll, you'll like launch Fireworks um, and those are your little jobs. Um, and that's actually been great. It's, it's gained a lot of traction outside of the, the material science field. And it's, it's one of the supported workflow management systems um, at the uh, National Energy Research Supercomputing Center in, in, in Berkeley, where, where, where we are. Um, so a lot of people are using that. It was sort of something custom you know, built for like uh, our needs, the needs of, 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 of this a small community that, that wanted to have easy interfaces to running workflows on these HPC systems that use these, these scheduling systems like, like Slurm and, and you know, how do you run a supercomputer versus you know, public cloud or whatever. Um, so so it, it's, it's great for that and, and sort of setting up the configuration files for these, these batch systems, um, but doing it in a way that sort of makes sense to you that, that maybe makes more sense to someone who's familiar with you know something more like like airflow or something like that um so so yeah that's a big part of our stack of running this this fireworks system um that's python and mongodb based um and uh yeah one thing was what was really nice and i think it's worked out well as we made a big bet on mongodb early on the, the, the project started in around 2011 2012 i didn't join until a little later but but mongodb was was uh you know new then but um there was a small team at the time and there was this one guy, Anabai was a postdoc and um, things were done in, in SQL, um, but it was so hard with, with, with research to have to keep doing database migrations and schema changes because let's add more properties, let's do this. Oh, we, we think it should, it should look this way because in research you sort of don't know exactly how you wanna structure the data all the time or like new properties. And so the scheme was constantly changing, constantly evolving. And so we, we found it was a bit more, it was a bit better for that environment to have, you know, I mean, to, to, to go more along the spectrum to, to schema on, 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 on read essentially, and then put a little bit more, more weight on the application layer and be able to, to put more flexible stuff just in JSON you know, in the MongoDB and, you know, certainly, you know, index things as we needed, you know, Mongo is great with indexing, but to kind of sort of have that sort of thing. Um, and so, you know, big MongoDB shop um, and, and, and Python. Uh, uh, the website, um, 
when I was there, we were using Django and I think, I think it's still using Django, but now we're sort of transitioning because we want to enable more people to, to write these apps um, and, and contribute to them. So uh, there's been a lot of great work with the, the dash plotly, uh, uh, sorry, the, the plotly dash framework, um, sort of this, 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 this uh, little framework uh, that based on Flask that people can just write in Python and generate visualizations. And we've tried to do some React components because people love being able to visualize material science specific stuff. Um, yeah. In terms of the actual machine learning stuff, uh, so that that statistical learning framework for the elastic moduli, um, that was done uh, using gradient boosting machine uh, LocFit. So LocFit is, is this project out of Bell Labs, um, localized regression. Um, and so that was what the, the team um, was doing um, at, uh, at San Diego and helped deploy that. Um, and then that was wrapped around with Python. So that was not done in Python, um, uh, C, um, and, uh, and sort of we, we produced a Python package for that, and that, that, that's in our, our GitHub organization. And then to deploy that, uh, I think initially, yeah, we, we had like a separate VM that just, just ran it in a, in, a, in a Conda environment, like a mini, mini Conda. I mean, um, Python environment and uh, sort of just did kind of a service-oriented architecture where we're able to have the existing website just sort of call out to that API. So we're able to sort of dip our toes into that instead of trying to integrate it into the whole whole structure. Um, and I think that worked out well. Um, it, it, it's worked out well. I guess, um, what, what else can I say about the infrastructure? You know. Uh, we have a lot of people using it, but 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 what wonderfully, it, it's not so much that we have to worry about you know millions of requests per second sort of thing. So we were sort of able to get away with um, you know cloud VMs in in our in our supercomputing center. Um, we had a, a great uptick in availability by being able to uh, deploy to um, this 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 architecture that was run uh, off of. Uh, Rancher, it's a system that, that helps deploy Docker containers. And since then, it's, it's migrated. Um, it's it's the spin service by, by, by NERSC. So they're basically running Rancher um, 2, which, which helps manage a Kubernetes cluster. And so we're able to kind of like auto scale things. Um, and it's great. But uh, yeah, for, for the most part, we, we've sort of definitely taken the approach of like when we really need to go up, then we, then we go up. Um, actually, for, for the longest time, um, it's funny. I'm thinking of that 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 old cartoon panel that says on the internet, "No one knows you're a dog," and has like like a dog behind a computer. So so on on the internet, no one knows that you're running SQLite. Um, and so <laughs> you know, for, for for a long time, none of our materials. Great. I really like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Not, not our materials database, but but uh, the, the the sort of user login database. Um, we were running SQLite because, you know, it was mostly just reading. People had long-lived sessions and um, it was fine. And, you know, eventually we, we migrated up to, um, I think we chose MySQL because that was the thing that was supported um, uh, on the back end. But yeah, we're definitely kind of doing that sort of thing. We're like using kind of the simplest thing that could possibly work. And then as, as demand goes up, um, you know, as the project gets, gets more popular, we kind of uh, upgrade to, to things that kind of have the same look and feel, the same interface that we can plop in. Um, so, so that's been nice, and yeah, I think so. For our, our, our machine learning stuff, uh, yeah, we, we've we've 
use the HPC stuff to, 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 to cram things in with, with, with fireworks and then run things and dispatch out to collaborators uh, to develop these models. Um, but then other than that, yeah, it's sort of a, a combination of, of, of little VMs um, and in some cases, some of this um, Kubernetes-backed infrastructure, um, definitely you know, containerized. Um, we've been able to, get, to sort of get away with that and, uh, and, and serve people, yeah. That's really great. So to kind of go back to the data modeling for a little bit, and uh, I don't know a whole lot about material science, but do you guys have the same kind of issue that the sort of data within the materials is just not well suited to a tabular to a tabular structure? So like being able to build a relational database that actually is kind of in at least like a little bit intuitive and models the data well is just a really, really difficult task. Because I know that's something that constantly comes up in biology. And so sometimes people are like, writing their own database backends and this and that. And then more recently, people have come out with yeah. um, the different graph APIs. And I guess everybody's happy with that. So the biologists finally found something that they're happy with. But I don't know, does that same thing happen <laughs> in material science? Or is it like, no, we're good with tables. We like our tables. Uh, yeah, no, definitely the modeling is nice with without tables. Um, and people definitely like want their tables when it comes to machine learning. Um, in this community, uh, because you know people will, will, will you know will like dealing with a pandas data frame, or, or they'll be working in Python, and they'll kind of want essentially tables of features, um, and so they'll want to massage things into a tabular format. But in terms of, of presenting the data, yeah, a lot of stuff seems like it's a little bit more hierarchical. Um, so, so one of one of our our, our workhorse data structures is the um, so-called structure, so the, like the, the material structure, cell structure. Um, and and what, what's nice about that is uh, it really fits in well with with Python actually and, 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 and JSON. So like one workflow that someone might do is they might um, hit our API um, and want to get the the physical structure, the, the, the sort of coordinate structure, the mathematical coordinate structure of a material, and they'll download that, and that will be a, a JSON object that'll have multiple fields, and it might. You know, talk about the lattice and the different sites of the lattice and you know, all these sort of attributes, and they'll actually load that directly into their their Python library through the Python wrapper. Um, and it, essentially, that that dictionary, that nested dictionary, goes to the input of a class constructor of of a of a structure object in the Python package, and then you can use you know object oriented techniques like okay, given the structure, you know call methods on it, like take it to this kind of file so that I can pass that to my simulation or like dot plot it, <laughs> you know? Uh, so you can do all, the, all these sorts of things where people can get their hands on the data in this really flexible format. And they're not really so concerned whether it's a table or not. It's just kind of like a bunch of metadata that they download through the wrapper and it is, and now all of a sudden they can program and do autocomplete in their editor and their Jupyter notebook with it. Um, so I, I think people more care about getting that kind of bundle of data, you know, into their system, and you know, under the hood, you know, whatever it is is fine. And and so what's what's nice is with you know Python, you know, JSON for transport and and uh, you know dictionaries for passing keyword arguments to constructors. I mean, it, it's just it's really nice that way. Um, uh, but yeah, I think people also just 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 like um, some of that that hierarchy. And being able to do that, and uh, 
one thing we've been able to deal with uh, in terms of documentation is, is, is our, our, our document hierarchical structure. We have a GitHub repository where we kind of have a sample document that has folder structure that, that represents all of these different fields so people can kind of keyboard shortcut and like search for you know, energy. And like, oh, it's over here in this field. And what's nice is um, we kind of directly expose a, a, a Mongo API um, on a REST endpoint. So if people learn the Mongo query language, they can kind of, you know, dot into paths like people are used to with, if you don't know Mongo, you might know, know JQ or just the notation for, for searching in, you know, within JSON structures. Um, that, that's helpful for a lot of, a lot of stuff. Um, especially because, yeah, we, we can pack a lot of related information into these documents, um, which is, you know, denormalizing, but a lot, it's nicer than people having to, you know, join different things, join different tables. Um, so yeah, I, I find that the people have, have liked this, this kind of, uh, this, this document oriented structure. Um, one thing we, we, we didn't get into while I was there, but I, I've been increasingly enamored with is, is, is graph technology and graph search. Um, because, because still, you know, there's, there's a limit to how much you can denormalize and you kind of wanna, uh, you know, find connections across documents by sort of just traveling directly between them and doing, um, graph-like queries, you know, whether whether with uh, you know Cipher and Neo4j or or, or Sparkle with, with an RDF graph, um, yeah, I, I think that's that seems like the future to me. Um, but but we've we've gotten a lot um, of traction with document orientation versus, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right, Jillian. A lot of the, the data just doesn't seem rectangular in their heads. Um, it, it's, it's it's sort of it, it'll it'll get that way. When when you need to prepare it for machine learning, but in terms of just sort of storing it and 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 working with it and searching it with it to then eventually extract it as tables to to do analysis downstream, yeah, I think think people people really love the more flexible model. Yeah. One thing I know I love when I'm pulling data from some other API is when there's a good Python SDK available. I'm curious, <laughs> what was the history behind that package? Like, were you building that right away? Did that develop later on based on feedback from people who were using it? Uh, I'm curious how that, how that piece of it developed. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it definitely developed um, out of necessity of, of the researchers that were using it. So originally the project um, was the programming was done in, in Java and using using SQL, um, but yeah, later it sort of transitioned to Python because it was just a breath of fresh air, I think, for the developers and and in Mongo. Um, and but it, it was definitely research based. It was definitely a working thing that that they wanted to. You know, it was MIT licensed, open for everyone in the community. But it was definitely like we are doing research and publishing papers using this software, and like we need to use version control, otherwise we're gonna go out of our minds. And, and like, just, just for reproducibility and like for this to work and for us to do quality research, like we really wanna use Python, it leverages all of these other great libraries, um, you know, numerical libraries for, for doing various things. Um, and we're just using this for our research and uh, we're small, so like, you know, like this isn't the point of what we do. The point of what we do isn't to write software, it's to do research. So, you know, a lot of companies will, you know, open source to commoditize their complements. And I think this is sort of a similar idea. It's like, well, you know, we would love it if other people would also like help maintain this, but like we, we really need this for our research. Um, and it just kind of caught on, I guess. Um, um, it was definitely nice, the decision to integrate into that 
package uh, uh, API access um, for, for, the, for the, the materials project. Because otherwise, yeah, so the, the, the name of the package is called PyMatGen. So Python Materials Genomics. Um, uh, yeah, originally the, pro the project was called the Materials Genome Project. Um, but then uh, the US White House decided to launch the Materials Genome Initiative, um, which, which is more broader. And so there was a name clash and we were like, yeah, and we were funded under, under that, but we were like, okay, we, we can't call ourselves the Materials Genome Project anymore. So just the Materials Project. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the PyMat Gen retains that kind of, you know, Python Materials Genomics. Um, uh, obviously a nod to, you know, uh, the, the Human Genome Project and like, well, let's, let's, you know, catalog all known materials and like, so that people can do stuff with it. Um, but yeah, so that, that PyMat Gen package definitely, um, the ecosystem around it was, was definitely out of necessity for research and and you know we want to publish the research and have it re reproducible so we don't want to just hand people like excel spreadsheets and files we kind of want to be like here here's the data on this site and download this python package and this is how you can reproduce this plot you know so it, definitely like integral to like um the impact of the research and getting people to cite it thus progressing the careers of the people who write the software and, and all that stuff so it's definitely essential for that. It wasn't. It was. It was an uh, enlightened self-interest, as they say. Um, uh, but yeah, it's, it's a Python has definitely served us served us well. Um, we got through the transition of uh, 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 Python two to Python three. I, I think the one thing that's helped for the project is um, uh, there are a couple more people on it. But but one of the early still a PI, uh, Shui Ping Ong, professor at San Diego, was, was sort of the 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 benevolent dictator for life. Uh, as as they say, um, and so he was just very good at organizing the project. And you know, at one point, he was like, "Okay, you know," and like handling really great software development practices of like deprecation notices of, of like functionality, and like, "Okay, this version of PyMedGen will be the last one to support Python 2. and you know that sort of thing. So I think just we really lucked out on a lot of the um, the governance aspects of, of people involved in the project, and them being um, really stellar researchers but also just really with an eye towards software engineering and the, the importance of, of tool building um so i think that that combination has been really lucky for the project as a whole yeah. i'm just wondering because you said the started back in 2011 did you have any issues like with publishing everything as open source or did you get a lot of pushback about that because i know it seems like it's so much more accepted now like just you know it's almost like the default in research, the software is open source right. and uh, any intellectual property is maybe in the data if you're even gonna try for that. But I mean, 10 years ago, I don't think that was the case or at least it wasn't in bioinformatics. It was still very much, uh, you had to go and email people and be like, please let me use your software. And then they would email you a zip right. file and you would pray that it installed and so on and so forth. So did you guys have any kind of uh, issues with that or was maybe material science is more along the open source path already? Uh, I, so I, I wasn't around for the very, the very early years, um, the first couple of years, but I, I suspect it has a lot to do with the decision makers of, of the leaders involved and the institutional support uh, and, and, and like culture. Uh, yeah, I think still with a lot of stuff, especially in industry, things aren't so open, um, you know, with, with proprietary information. But I, yeah, I think just something about, um, you know, we, we were... Uh, it sort of started out of out of, out of MIT, um, which which you know it has a transition has a tradition of, of a lot of openness. The, you know the GNU project out of it, the MIT license, and 
uh, you know, MIT OpenCourseWare and kind of that, that tradition of like trying to get things out. Um, and then it, it, it transitioned to, to Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, um, which again, Berkeley, California, also like a, a, a tradition of, you know, uh, Berkeley system distribution, you know, open source Unix and like a lot of kind of that kind of culture of, of like opening things up um, and it being a department of U.S. Department of Energy Labs. So a lot of federal stuff, taxpayer funded stuff, um, you know, uh, there's, there's a lot of, of, of push towards that and, and niceness towards that. Um, the other thing, I, I think just also our, our, our director, Christine Person, was also very sort of personally adamant about it. I don't know what that what, what that's about. Um, I, you know, she, she's she's half Swedish, so maybe part of that kind of, you know, pirate party ethos of, or, or whatever <laughs> of like uh, uh, there's sort of a lot of stuff about digital openness um, out there. Um, but I think just yeah, a lot, sort of a combination of a personality is just sort of really wanting this to be open, um, and um, you know, uh, uh, almost like a, a, a tiny bit of that 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 Python ethos of like um, easier to ask forgiveness than permission versus look before you leap. You know, the, the tradition in Python is to just you know do a try accept rather than you know, yeah, you kind of just like okay, let, let, let's like let it fail, um, and if it fails, okay, fine. Um, and, and so I, I just feel like there was a lot of that. A lot of the personalities involved um, in the leadership of the project weren't, and, a lot, and, and, and thus they sort of a flywheel effect because you sort of attract people who are, who, are, who are interested in that and who want things to be open. And you know, if there's ever kind of a, a gray area of like, oh, we could go on either side of this of open or closed, like having you know the culture being like, we want to push towards the open and see if we can you know go over like the minimal what we perceive as minimal activation energy to like get over that and like, you know, coordinate with our, our site licensing office to like make that happen. Um, I think there was just a lot, a lot of that personal drive um, with a lot of the people just believing that um, this was the going to be the future of the field and that it, it wasn't um, giving up anything um, by, by being open. It, it, it was sort of creating a bigger pie. Uh, you know, yeah, I just, I just feel like there was a lot of that, kind of um, yeah, personality driving stuff. And the sort of other people saw that it was successful and, and sort of, you know, whether it, it's the cargo cult effect or not, I, mean, I, you know, I think things just sort of got a little bit more open um, and then the field sort of progressed and, and took, took the lead and, and, and sort of, I guess we were, we were the first penguin to jump in the water and then everyone's like, okay, I guess, I guess there's nothing lurking down there. We can, we can all jump in too. Um, yeah, so it definitely you know was was one of the first open computational materials databases, and yeah, I just think a lot of that has to do with the the, the people involved, and um, you know specifically on the project, but also you know in the institutions that had a certain ethos around you know openness and drive towards that where where they were and where they came out of, and yeah, it's just it's one of those things. Well, cool. So I think uh, we're just about at time here. So do you have any kind of closing comments or anything else you wanted to touch on that we didn't get to? Uh, sure. I, I, I just I just want to uh, I, I love the idea of, of data science deployed and like making things more more accessible. I, I know in the sciences, at least there's this, this big push. There's the seminal paper a few years ago that, that crystallized a lot of thought in the area called um, the FAIR guiding principles, F-A-I-R, findable, accessible, interoperable, reusable, talking about how, you know, you know, it, it, it's one thing to make things open, you know, and like here, look, it, it, it's like up on GitHub, you know, <laughs> versus like actually, like, you can install it. 
yeah, you can install it versus actually like making things reproducible where, where like you have some documentation and you can actually like help people like actually access it. And it's another thing beyond that, um, you know, once people have found it and access to actually be able to interoperate and like understand the scheme of what you're doing and like, you know, you'd be able to do that and then actually be able to, to reuse it. So even, even though you've, you've sort of got it, it's like, what well, can I really reuse this? Like what's the license, you know, that sort of thing. So all of our data is, 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 um, is released under uh, a uh, creative commons license. Um, so, you know, free to adapt and remix and reuse. Um, and yeah, I, I think that's, that's really important for us to uh, address, you know, grand societal issues. And I think it just sort of, it, it helps a lot of people because a lot of the value um, isn't necessarily in, in the information, but it, it's sort of in the organization and in, 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 in the, uh, in, in how you use it and, and apply it. And so I think um, being able to sort of deploy these, these models and have them be understandable um, is just, is just fantastic. And it, 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 it helps inspire people um, for what's possible with computers and programming, digital technology, because a lot of times it just, it's, it's still so inaccessible. Like it, it's, you know, I've definitely talked to people and like we, we feel embarrassed when like trying to teach people, you know, the basics of like data science or programming. Like, like I work with this great op organization called the Carpentries, um, you know, that, that, that teaches essentially lab skills for software, uh, for, for, for scientists, um, you know, for, for, for computer stuff. So people don't necessarily want to be a, a software engineer, you know, but they, they, they want to be a carpenter. They want to be able to like kind of fix their deck and like, you know, repair this, this thing. Um, but, but, but still it's like, what's the command line and what's the shell? There's, there's so many barriers. I mean, it's just being able to bring things down for people by having these web-based interfaces that are familiar and sort of um, get people more into stuff and like feel like, you know, models and machine learning can be part of, you know, part of helping them and like they can do what they do best and machines can do what they do best. And I, I think it's just, there's a lot of potential there for that sort of thing. Um, um, particularly in, in, in the sciences um, and engineering, but also just, just in general. So yeah, I, I'd like to encourage people to um, demand more out of their, out of their, their, their taxpayer money and, 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 and their research being accessible. Um, not just, meaning you have free access to a PDF, but uh, yeah, but, but you, you can actually engage with the science and understand it, understand, you know, why we spend so much as a society on public science, because I, I think it's a great idea. And a lot of people, you know, don't know all the time because it, it's unclear what the benefits are because they, they're so downstream. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's it's why really it's cool. also, it's so important to have you know, this, this idea of the human in the loop, because I think it also leads to making very different technical decisions than you would otherwise, if you didn't have that, you know, sometimes uh, I think, especially as tech people, we get kind of, you know, like tunnel vision about it. And then you have to like, just sort of talk to somebody who's actually going to be using it from a completely different perspective to really, you know, to really make it be able to be usable and accessible, as you said. Yeah. Couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. All right. And anybody have anything else? No. No? Cool. All right. Well, that's been it. First episode. Woo! <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's even live. All right. Well, uh, thanks to you both. And bye-bye and talk to you next week. Yeah. yeah. Looking forward to it. Bye.